0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we are particularly excited about, and we interview the author of that book. Today I'm pleased to say we have Melissa Clapper on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Ballots, Babies, and Banners of Peace, American Jewish Women's Activism, 1890 to 1940. Melissa, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Marshall. Great. So maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we are particularly excited about, and we interview the author of that book. Today, I'm pleased to say we have Melissa Clapper on the show, and we'll be talking about her book. Ballots, Babies, and Banners of Peace, American Jewish Women's Activism, 1890-1940. to Melissa, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Marshall.
0: Great. So maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay. Well, I am currently a professor of history and director of women's and gender studies at Rowan University in Glassboro, New Jersey. I've been there for about 12 years. Um, I guess working backward, I got my doctorate at Rutgers University, worked in the women's history program there, which was an amazing place to go to graduate school. I worked with Alice Kessler Harris, which was an enormous treat. Um, She's still very much a mentor to me, and I'm very appreciative of everything I did at Rutgers. I was one of those few very happy graduate students. (laughs) Um, Before that, though, I went to Goucher College, and there, too, I had some really wonderful mentors in Julie Jeffrey and Jean Baker and Peter Bardaglio. I was very fortunate. And I actually had started college planning to be a high school English and history teacher, like my mother. But um, while I was in college, I just became so fascinated with the idea of devoting part of my life to research that I kind of kicked my ambitions up the next level and decided I wanted to go into academia. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of support in college. I had never really thought much about women's history, per se, until college, which was ironic because I did go to a girls' high school, but we didn't spend much time thinking about girls and women's history there. And <laughs> <laughs> in college, I still hadn't thought much about it. In fact, I did not take women's history, a specific women's history class in college. But when it came time to write my senior thesis, uh, Peter Bardaglio, my advisor, said, hmm, how about something to do with women? <laughs> and thus, a career was kind of born, mm-hmm. actually. Um, so I get, got into women's history then. Um, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and in Miami, Florida, and in Baltimore, Maryland. Wow, so
0: you've been all over.
1: A little bit. Mostly I went to elementary school in Dallas and high school in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. That's, I guess, where I'm from. My parents are currently living in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And I always, you know, from the very earliest ages, when I was really little, I always loved history and biography. I used to read all these biographies of doomed princesses and, you know, (laughs) Lives of the Queens of England by Agnes Strickland. I don't know if anyone Mm -hmm. listening to this remembers those books, but they're kind of a Victorian era take. On the Queens of England, I just devoured those from mm-hmm. the public library. Mm-hmm. So I did have interest in kind of women's history, but I didn't know to call it that then.
2: Right. right. And
1: as somebody who always attended Jewish schools through all the way through high school, um, when it came time to think about a dissertation topic, I really wanted to combine some of my interests in the history of education, in women's history, a new field for me, <laughs> and right. in Jewish history. And I kind of ended up with a dissertation about adolescent Jewish girls in the United States. Mm-hmm. And kind of it took off
0: from there. That's interesting. It's, it's well told. Uh, and I think it, it nicely sheds a certain light on how uh, history careers are born. They're, and they're really sort of cobbled together. I don't think anybody, I don't know if anybody, any 16-year-old says, I'm going to be a historian.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to be a history teacher, though. Yeah. And teaching remains very important to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. So tell us how you came to write uh, ballots, babies, and banners of Peace, which is very nicely alliterative, I might say.
1: <laughs> I like the alliteration. My second book, Small Strangers, is also alliterative. Yeah. I um, Well, actually it actually comes back to both my dissertation and that second book, Small Strangers. When I was working on those books about children and about adolescents, I was struck by the how politicized some of these children, particularly the adolescents, were. I didn't think much about it at the time, but kind of in the back of my head, I noticed this. In my dissertation, which became my first book, Jewish Girls Coming of Age in America, um, it was clear to me that by the time they were mid-teenagers, adolescents, those were not quite the terms in use during that whole period, but by the time they, were, they really were thinking about things outside themselves. And so you know, a typical middle-class Jewish girl living in Chicago in the 1890s was attending debates or sometimes participating in them about suffrage and about racism. And it it, it just caught my eye, but I didn't think that much about it then. And then when I was working on Small Strangers, which is about immigrant children in the United States during the late 1800s and early 1900s, I had a whole section of that book about birth control and about the effect of birth control on various immigrant communities. And so there, too, is a seed for what would become the next project. And I really wanted to go back to Jewish women's history. And I had become increasingly irritated over the years by some of the otherwise wonderful collections on women's history in the United States that completely ignore Jewish women.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, You know, there are a number of readers, and there are wonderful teaching tools, and, you know, solid in all kinds of ways, but they just, with maybe one or two exceptions in some of the editions, they just left Jewish women out, and Mm -hmm. it irritated me. Uh Uh, And I thought it was especially odd, given the fact that everybody acknowledges that a very disproportionate number of the important second-wave feminists of the 60s and 70s were Jewish. And although many of those women never, not, not until recently, did some of those women ever really address that in, their, in thinking about their own lives or their own activism, it was you know, one of these kind of open secrets. And I thought, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all, given the kinds of Jewish women's organizations that were very important in the early part of the 20th century, it wouldn't surprise me if some of those women were also involved with the larger women's movement. Mm-hmm. And that was really the germ of the idea for this book. I began to think about this book when I was not even halfway through Small Strangers, actually, I beginning to think about what my next big archival project would be. And once I had begun to think about it a little bit, I started gathering the tidbits as they came my way, and it began to dawn on me that a very, a very large number of the doctors involved in the birth control movement were Jewish women. These were things I couldn't really follow up then while I was working on Small Strangers, but I, it was sitting, it was kind of settling in the back of my mind as I worked on and completed that book. And so by the time I finished Small Strangers and it was in pre-publication, I had already decided to work on Jewish women's activism in the women's movement. And there's a very large historiography on Jewish women in the labor movement or in Zionism, you know, Jewish inflected movements. But there's virtually, there was virtually no historical literature on Jewish women and first wave feminism. And I thought, foolishly, perhaps, maybe boldly, that I would try to fill in that gap. And that's what this book is about.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, I, I noticed this myself, and it is people don't really talk about it. But you're right about the second wave feminists. Many of many of many of these women were Jewish, and for it's not
1: mentioned. It's you know it's not until recently actually. Um, I should say my you know esteemed very senior colleague Joyce Antler at Brandeis University is currently writing about this. Yeah. And she held a conference. I, I'm not sure, maybe three years ago. And she got a lot of those women into the same room for the first time. (laughs) And it was amazing. I mean, all of them, one after another, one after another, these women who are now in their 60s and 70s said, you know, I never really gave it much thought. But now that you mention it, (laughs) this is why I was an activist. This is why I was Mm -hmm. a feminist. And a lot of them invoked their grandmothers and great-grandmothers, who, of course, in many cases are the people I'm writing about. And there were often traditions of activism, of Jewishly important activism in those families. Yeah. And this is, you know, it ended up kind of exploding in second wave feminism, but it, it didn't necessarily come out of nowhere. And then there was also, even if it wasn't in their own family, there was a huge tradition of Jewish women's public activity that came from Europe that showed up in the United States in some interesting ways. But yeah. it, was, it was quite astonishing to hear some of these women, and some of them were clearly still unwilling to discuss the issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it is curious. They never made anything of it, and I'm thinking of people like, uh, Bella Abzug was one of them, I think, and uh, yes. Betty Friedan was another one, and um, uh, 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 Gloria Steinem. Mm.
1: Gloria uh, Steinem's grandmother, Pauline Steinem, was very active in the Toledo branch of the National Council of Jewish Women. Yeah, She's in my book. She was a right. suffragist, and Gloria Steinem has actually written about her grandmother. But oh, yeah.
2: uh-huh. many
1: of these other activists just didn't didn't want to engage, even though. They then realized, kind of looking around the room, and a few of them then admitted that they had kind of noticed it then, too, that everybody they were working with was was Jewish.
0: Yeah, I mean, these people don't come out of nowhere. I mean, you know, I I can tell you that there was no tradition in my own family, which is not Jewish, but there was no tradition of activism, and we were not activists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because
1: religion has always been, I mean, religion has been seen across all kinds of, you know, time and space differences as a motivator for activism. And in the women's movement, if you look at people like Casey Hayden and Mary King, you know, in the early second-wave feminism, they were also motivated by their Christian religion. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: You oh, no, about yeah. the no, YWCA, sorry. you know.
0: Sure, sure. Quaker, Quakerism famously has Absolutely. an impact on this, especially on feminism. You know, Katie Stanton, I think she was a Quaker, wasn't she? I don't remember. Yeah,
1: Susan B. Anthony
0: was a Quaker, yeah. Oh, Susan B. Anthony was a Quaker, yeah. So Elizabeth Quaker. Katie
1: Stanton um, was eventually, was increasingly anti-religious as time went yeah.
0: on. Okay, I don't, I don't know. You get it. it's my ignorance is manifest, but I know Quakerism <laughs> has its sort of relationship to this thing. Um, so, yeah, particular religions do do this kind of thing. So it didn't come out of nowhere, and, and so you tell us sort of where it came out of. I want to give some background to our listeners first in terms of um, uh, waves of immigration, because actually quite, there were not very many Jews in the United States before the 1880s, were there? And then by 1940, there were really a lot.
1: Yes. So there's I mean there's a
0: huge increase.
1: There's a huge increase. Um, there's a growing interest among American Jewish historians in the earlier period. And my first book, which starts in 1860, also comes out of that tradition. But in 1880, the general, you know, this is, of course, a very broadly arrived at number, but generally speaking, the number is about 250,000 Jews in the United States in 1880. Um, From 1880 through 1925, millions and millions and millions more came as part of, of course, a larger international wave of migration, but there was a very significant Jewish movement into not just the United States, actually, but other places like Argentina and even Mm -hmm. Australia. Um, You know, immigration historians talk about both push and pull factors We know what the pull factors to the United States were. The push factors out of Eastern Europe were also very strong. Mm -hmm. There was tremendous anti-Semitism programs, a new... Kind of plan among the um, among some of the czars to specifically target Jews by either converting them, to getting them into getting the men into the army and never letting them leave, mm-hmm. <laughs> or expelling them, um, really restricting economic and other kinds of opportunities, so that mm-hmm. there was a really mass migration. Mm-hmm. And that that Jewish migration is part of a larger shift in migration patterns to the United States at the end of the 1800s, where. Instead of most immigrants coming from Central and Western Europe, they were instead coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, and Mm -hmm. that included a large number of Jews. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the immigration officials did not, the census records were not done by religion, Um, they're usually seen as, they're the Russians, or sometimes the Austrians, or the Poles, to a lesser extent, the Poles but a very large proportion of the so-called Russian immigrants during this period were, actually, were in fact Jewish too.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, this is interesting because it, it adds a generational dynamic. And I know that um, even, even, I've been told this by Israeli friends, that even today there's this sort of, that, Eastern, that there's a difference between German Jews and Eastern European Jews. that They're yes. thought of in different ways. I was wondering if there's some sort of tension between the Jews that were already in the United States, that 250,000, and these later immigrants.
1: Well, I'm going to give the historian's answer of yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) It used to be, you know, in older ways to view American Jewish history. That was the organizing principle: the quote Germans versus the quote Russians. Right. That is no longer the way that responsible historians view things. First of all, yeah. First of all, the so-called Germans were not. There was no Germany at the time that most of them came, and and a large number of them came from Posen, the eastern, the most eastern part of that, where they spoke Yiddish. Mm -hmm. So you have Yiddish, you know, the supposed oxymoron of Yiddish-speaking German. Jews. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a problem with that view. However, there's no question. There's just no question. There was a difference between the the more established American Jewish community, which had, due to factors in the United States, primarily been able to acculturate fairly quickly, also because their numbers were much smaller. It was easier to kind of fold in. Um, And the newer arrivals, who in some cases were more religious and in many cases were more politicized, although the earlier wave of Jewish immigration had also often come for political reasons. Following the revolutions of 1848, large numbers of Jews sometimes had to leave places like um, what would become Germany or yeah. you know, Austria, and those kinds of places. Mm-hmm. So, But there was, there was tension, and there was both a strong desire to help the new immigrants, a really sincere desire to help them, and a desire to exert a form of what you know, some historians would call social control over them and to make sure that these new people would not affect the status of the more established American Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there were all kinds of huge numbers of, within the community, organizations set up to help the new immigrants. The new immigrants did not always appreciate the kind of help being offered. <laughs> But they also were usually very quick to take them up on it because it was health. <laughs> and so within a generation or so, many of these institutions really reshaped themselves and were eventually run by the children of those newer immigrants. And you know, the whole field of social work in many ways comes out of these new institutions for immigrants. And the Jewish community played a large role in that. Certain organizations like the National Council of Jewish Women, which is a big player in the book, um, started off with religious missions and mostly for middle-class american-born jews but changed their focus pretty quickly like many other progressive era women's organizations to a more political and social set of kind of mission statements and within an organization like that there what there remained a divide between american-born and non-american-born jewish women but that softened over time and by the time you get to the 30s some of the most important women in the national council of jewish women were themselves immigrants or the children of immigrants they did tend to be of somewhat higher class status in that particular organization. That is a difference between the National Council of Jewish Women and, say, Hadassah, which a lot of people might be more familiar with, which was Zionist, of course, and did almost all of its work outside the United States, and is actually not a major player in the book. But Hadassah tended to attract more working-class Jewish women. Mm -hmm. So there were certainly differences, but there was also... As in the women's movement in general, a desire to see kind of female identity, to see gender identity as the most important thing, and that then allowed for the crossing of all kinds of boundaries.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's let's. Uh, I, so I was wrong about that. Let's see what else I can be wrong about. <laughs> another another cliche is all you know, my historiography about this is about fifteen years old. So <laughs> the, so an, another thing that people often say about these immigrants is, and this is true not only of Jewish immigrants but of Italian immigrants. So there's a divide between uh, sort of real left wingers. In the Jewish instance, that would be you know the the Bund and and that sort of thing, and then everybody else. Is there, are there do you see these divisions in in this group of immigrants?
1: Yes, I do think so. There's a, there's a spectrum of political activism. Some people brought their leftism with them from the old world, so to speak, and many of those people tended to become the most doctrinaire in the United States. Some of the people who started off as Bundists and socialists in um, in Russia, for instance, um, became became communists. And you know, in following the Russian Revolution, not a huge number of Jews, but a certain number, um, those people had, of course, a very serious crisis <laughs> during the first Stalinist years, and then, particularly after 1939, mm-hmm. um, and very, very few of them stayed officially in the party after that. So there's that kind of divide. There's also the people who, you know, formed a kind of American who who stayed fairly doctrinaire and followed the Second International socialist ideas. That was a problem for women um, who were interested in suffrage, for instance. Jewish women and other immigrant women who really wanted to fight for suffrage found that the Second International did not particularly support activism with gender identity. Foremost, they said, fine, you want to be a suffragist, do it, but only as an instrument of socialism. So there were those kinds of conflicts. In general, the newer arrivals tended to be more politically liberal than the more established community, mm-hmm. but there, it, as time went on, especially after immigration was shut, effectively shut down in 1924, the communities were less divisible on those lines. Mm-hmm. In general, Jews were seen as, maybe not always correctly, just more politically liberal than most other immigrant groups, and the, unlike, unlike the Italian case, where the Catholic Church could at least in some cases be a force for conservatism, that was that was no that wasn't really the case within Judaism. There were many different denominations of Judaism, and no one denomination kind of pulled to the right politically, so to speak. And in fact, if anything, it might have pulled to the left.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to ask about that too. It's Sort of another uh, another cliche that we need to deal with here. Uh, I don't know if it's cliche. Or I, I know it's not true because I'm from the Midwest. So uh, you know the other cliche is that they're all end up in New York.
1: Okay, that's a good, that's a good cliche to explode. I'm actually very committed. <laughs> yes, I'm actually very committed, and in all my in all my work, I've been very committed to exploring the Jewish community outside of New York. It would be very foolish to say that New York was not the center of American Jewish right. life in very many ways. I'm, yeah, right. I'm not. I can't, and would not make that claim. Right, sure. That would just be silly. However. <laughs> There were even before, by 1880, there were Jewish communities literally all over the United States, yeah. in teeny little corners of the world you would never expect there to be Jewish communities. There still are old synagogue buildings, cemeteries. There was a Jewish presence all over the United States. Um,
0: yeah, they every, were. Amb- I mean, they were ambitious people, just like all other. They went. Yeah. I mean, I they know went- that I, I, I've often said this before, but you know, I grew up in, in Kansas, and my house was, I think, about four blocks from Temple Emmanuel. <laughs> My yep. best friend was Rob Cohen. I thought he was just kind of a peculiar Episcopalian or something. I couldn't quite <laughs> understand what his deal was.
1: <laughs> well, I'm not familiar with that particular synagogue, but it might well have been a congregation since the mid 1800s. I mean, if you go to yeah, yeah, like, like Cincinnati, been, yeah, for instance, there are you know congregations yeah. from the 1810s yeah. that are still very active. Um, and then there were not just in cities, not just in urban areas, but there yeah. really were Jewish communities everywhere. And in my first book, I really paid a lot of attention to that. Yeah. Um, organizationally, by 1900, certainly the focus had shifted. There were other urban centers that remained extremely important. Cincinnati was and still is the home to Reform Judaism in the United States, and that was an important center. Is Chicago that right? I, didn't, I didn't know
0: that. I, did, I didn't yeah. know that. That's interesting. I didn't know yeah. that.
1: I, I've done a significant amount of research at the American Jewish Archive Center, which is on the campus of... The, Hebrew Union College, that's huh. the Reform Rabbinical Seminary. It's across the street, basically, from it's the really University of Cincinnati. And yeah. it's an amazing, amazing resource, particularly for social and women's history.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And so anyone who does American Jewish history ends up spending a lot of time in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, so there were Jewish communities all over the place. And I, my book, like my first book, is a national study. It is yeah. not focused on New York. And many of the leaders that I write about did not come from New York. Um, some of them were from Minneapolis, from Chicago, from Atlanta, from San Francisco, I, you know, it's important to to me, this is kind of one of my political agendas for American Jewish history, is to really look at the national experience and to see that in some ways New York, while clearly very influential, was actually the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Um, it's certainly, you know, the whole nostalgia for the Lower East Side and this right. kind of thing have certainly shaped the way we think about American Jewish history, but it's not at all right. the full story.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I happen to know a guy who's been in the cattle and... Meat business his whole life, and he's in his. He's, and he tells me about the. the he, he, he knows he's almost know like. Jewish cattlemen in the United States. There's a dissertation topic for you. <laughs> there really are. I mean, it's totally serious. They're like, yes. yeah, definitely. They brought it over from Eastern Europe. They knew how to do it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, mm-hmm. the Jewish cattlemen. I don't know, you don't think about that, but there they were.
1: Well, there are Jewish liquor purveyors all right. over the United yeah, States, right. too. Sure. A recent book called Jews and Booze, right, about <laughs> it, which is maybe the best title ever, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by Marnie Davis, let's that give her the credit. That that um, wonderful book. Jews and Booze. And I Jews and Booze. They just you know, reviewed this for the AHR. And it it's, you know, she's writing about Jews as liquor. Um, you know, in the liquor industry, all over the United States in yeah. the late 19th century.
0: Right, exactly.
1: So, so, you know, we're,
0: yeah, so, so like motorcyclists, Jews are everywhere. Yep. Much,
1: yeah. <laughs> and that's um, important because the women's movement is everywhere, too. Yeah. The, you know, the women's movement of the first wave feminism was not focused on New York entirely. There yeah. were many different result, you know, loci everywhere. And that's mm-hmm. important because we don't want to see women's activism as focused just on one city or even only in urban areas. Mm-hmm. You know, there were there were suffragists everywhere. There were peace activists everywhere. There were birth control clinics all over the United States, and sometimes the most unlikely places. <laughs> um, and that's so. This is it is a national story.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about uh, ballots, babies, and banners of peace in that order. So ballots. How did uh, Jewish women get involved in? I, I, I think that's kind of a false question because I think they'd always been involved in. But how did they get involved in the the suffragist movement?
1: Well, unlike the other two movements, which we will get to, Jewish women tended to be involved in the suffrage movement primarily as individuals, and a little bit less so in the organiza- in the organizations like the National American Women's Suffrage Association. There was uh, another uh, something that holds the whole thing as a thread, unfortunately, through the whole book, is anti-Semitism, and the anti-Semitism in the suffrage movement, which has you know these really nineteenth-century roots, was palpable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so Jewish women's organizations were often very, very leery of officially getting involved with the suffrage movement. At the same time, Jewish women in those organizations, which were very active um, on all kinds of fronts throughout the country, saw that without the vote, like like other women in other organizations, they began to realize that without the vote, their power was capped at a certain point. They could get a lot done. They had a, a lot of authority based on their roles as mothers and as women, but there were limits, and they wanted to get rid of those limits and required more political power to do that. And the vote eventually became the focus of what had been a broader 19th century women's rights movement. Mm -hmm. And the Jewish women were equally likely to be attracted by by all these opportunities that the vote might offer. Working class Jewish women, like other working class women, were sometimes less excited about the vote. They just didn't see it as particularly important. They didn't think it was a bad idea. But for them, what mattered most was economic equity and workplace justice. So they didn't see the vote necessarily as central. So there was a class divide in the suffrage movement. As time went on, that decreased, and certainly by the last 10 years or so before women got the right to vote with the 19th Amendment, and that, that 1910 to 1920 period saw much more of a cross-class alliance than had existed before. But Jewish women were more likely to get involved as individuals or in small groups. Um, and so they did, starting from the 19th century. But they met t- pretty significant anti-Semitism wherever they went. Mm-hmm. And there was a traumatic moment in 1895 when Elizabeth Cady Stanton published this, um, what's called the Woman's Bible.
2: Yeah.
1: The Woman's Bible, if you read the Woman's Bible today, it would still be one of the most radical documents you've ever read about religion and gender. And mm-hmm. it's an extremely radical text. It's really kind of amazing to read it now and realize that it was published in 1895. It's actually not only by Stanton, she's more the editor, but many, many of the parts of the woman's Bible are really explicitly, viciously Mm -hmm. (laughs) anti-Semitic, blaming patriarchy on Judaism, effectively. And and Christianity, too, so that Christian women and women in the suffrage movement um, were also distanced themselves as far as they possibly could. All the national suffrage organizations issued official resolutions denouncing the woman's Bible, the reason that there's only a Susan B. Anthony coin and not an Elizabeth Cady Stanton coin is because she just lost her position and her prestige. She was too dangerous to be associated with. Mm -hmm. And Jewish women actually went, the National Council of Jewish Women had been founded only two years before, and a delegation actually went to her to protest, and she kind of brushed them aside. And that was very painful for a lot of Jewish women. And so some of them as individuals remained very committed to the suffrage movement, but the organizations thought they didn't want to be associated with suffrage at all. And that had lasting repercussions. The National Council of Jewish Women, which was kind of the poor example of a group that should have been on board with suffrage, never endorsed suffrage. Mm-hmm. Even as late as 1917, when the leaders were convinced that having a suffrage resolution passed would just be a pro forma thing, it still wasn't.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was partially as a result of some pretty nasty anti-Semitic experiences. And it also may be the case that some Jewish women's organizations even though they knew that they were politically involved, continued to think that their role and their mission was primarily religious and social and just didn't want to get involved in a group way. Mm -hmm. But there were individual Jewish women who were extremely important in the suffrage movement and even in the international suffrage movement. Mm -hmm. Women like Hannah Greenbaum Solomon, who was a founder of the National Council of Jewish Women in 1893 and its first president, was involved with the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, a woman named Maude Nathan was probably the most important Jewish woman suffragist in the country, and she was mostly active from New York, but she traveled all over the United States and gave speeches to Jewish groups, making a Jewish argument for suffrage, that there, were pl- there was plenty of precedent within Jewish tradition and history and law for Jewish women to have an active political role, citing people like Deborah, one of the biblical judges, or Miriam, who was Moses and Aaron's sister in the Bible and played a role during the exodus mm-hmm. from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Esther. You know, there were plenty of biblical women to use as role models. And so Ma and Nathan made a real point of mounting a kind of Jewish explanation and argument for suffrage. Mm-hmm. And increasingly that appealed to people. And then in the last years of the suffrage movement, as working class women, especially labor activists, which included, again, a disproportionate number of Jewish women, got involved in labor activism, they also came to support suffrage.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was interested in particularly the dynamic within Jewish communities. I understand Stanton and others' anti-Semitism because it was sort of a kind of cliched run-of-the-mill thing during the time, except among socialists. Socialists had kind of tried to do away with that. But Mm -hmm. among most people, they were just sort of had a polite anti-Semitism or sometimes it was impolite anti-Semitism. So that was just what people were. You know, I mean, that's that's the way they acted. But I was interested because, um, at least in some Jewish communities, women are given a certain role. And now this is true in Christian communities, lots of other communities as well. But I wondered how, uh, you know, what does the what did the Rebbe say when, uh, you know, when 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 Miriam—that's my daughter's name, by the way—when Miriam wanted, he w- w- says, "I think that we should vote." What, what? How did the how how did people how did you know congregations react to this?
1: Well. That's a more complicated question than you realize. <laughs> the, um, because of course, you know there are traditional gender roles in almost I mean, virtually all societies, yeah, right. whatever they sure. are. Yeah. And of course, many of them hark back to days of yore. And yeah. you know, generally speaking, the woman's role is you know inferior, submissive, all yeah. these kinds of. Nasty yeah, I'm not.
0: Words. I just want to say I'm not picking Judaism out. Yeah. Everybody no. has to struggle. <laughs> yeah, so. and,
1: and I should say that although the women's Bible targets Judaism, it is also quite an anti-Christian text. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> There's equal opportunity offense in yeah, something right. like that. <laughs> But actually there was a um, gender roles as, you know, the late historian Paula Hyman most famously wrote about were in Judaism were kind of different. They, in Eastern Europe, there was a big difference between traditional gender roles for women in central and Western European Jewish communities and in Eastern European Jewish communities. And those differences did show up and play out in the United States among the immigrants and descendants of the immigrants in Central and Western Europe, the kind of Victorian values and models of the angel of the household and this kind of thing became very popular and prevalent among Jewish communities as well. And it actually eased the transition of some of those earlier immigrants into the United States. They had very similar gender roles and models, you know, both in the old world and the new world, and it helped, you know, what family life was supposed to look like in Posen, let's say, was very similar to what it was supposed to look like in Cincinnati, and that made life easier, and it also meant that, the Americans accepting these new immigrants in their midst recognized their family style, so to Mm -hmm. speak. But among Eastern European immigrants, things were very different. In Eastern Europe, um, unlike in most of Western and Central Europe, the Jewish model, although very rarely the reality, that the ideal was that the highest ideal, the highest task to which a man could um, dedicate his life was studying the Torah and studying the Talmud. And uh, on a full-time basis and... In order for that to happen, somebody had to earn the living. Right. Who was going to do that? It was going to be the women. And yes. so that there was it... a complete reversal of roles. The women were supposed to be the breadwinners so that the men could dedicate their time and their lives to Torah study. This is not how most families function. <laughs> 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 not even a little bit. <laughs> no, I imagine not. <laughs> but it was an ideal, and that ideal allowed Jewish women to have a very significant public secular role. Very significant. They often were much better educated in the secular world. They, were, they had better numeracy. They had business skills and acumen. They spent their time in markets. They had a public voice that mattered, um, except in re- the religious world. So that they had this, there was a kind of divide. It was a very different set of gender roles and ideals in many Eastern European immigrant communities. And when they came to the United States, and the price of acculturation for many of those families was to switch to a new gender model where the men would have to earn a living, and the women would have to retreat into their homes. Again, that's an ideal. Of course, most families could not survive on only one income anyway. Um, still, that was it was a wrenching kind of change, and what ended up happening is that a lot of Eastern European Jewish women kind of refused to make that change totally, and where they maintained a political voice was in political activism. And so that enabled, the, you know, it, it made... it kind of facilitated the move of many Eastern European Jewish women into politics in the United States. Mm -hmm. This is not so dissimilar from the kind of Italian women Mm -hmm. who came over already as activists that Jennifer Guglielmo talks about in Living the Revolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there there was a basis for activism for both middle-class women from a kind of more genteel municipal housekeeping kind of model and also for Eastern European Jewish women. And by the time we get to the end of the period I cover in my book, so the late '30s, into the, you know, into the, even into the beginning of World War II, when you're talking about second, third, fourth, even fifth generation American Jewish women, a lot of this had these differences had softened, but it had left a legacy of very activist Jewish women.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. Yeah, that's interesting. I, someone should write the cultural history of this notion of a yeshiva booker. You know, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> sort of, it's, it died somehow in the United States in the nineteen. 30s, 40s, maybe? I don't know how it but... earlier,
1: Even earlier, because there yeah. really were no yeshivas mm-hmm. in the United yeah, States. Right, until, you know? until the 30s, when refugees began to build them. There was basically only one traditional yeshiva in the entire United States. Really? In the late 1800s, early 1900s, and that was in New York, um, a school that. called Eighth Chaim. that, through many permutations, actually. Became part of what is now Yeshiva University. Although Not a lot of
0: yeshivas now aren't there.
1: That's a long gene. out. Yes, there are a lot of yeshivas now, and many of them. <laughs> many of them were started. <laughs> many of them were started in the 1930s by refugees from yeah, Europe. Right. And in many in yeshiva communities that are currently centered around yeshiva, that model still exists, where mm-hmm. the woman is the one who does most of the income earning, the wage earning, and right. the, husband, the men are the ones who devote their lives to the study of Torah. That that model does still exist as an ideal.
0: Yeah, I don't know any of those people. But
1: well, you know, I, well, I do, and it works for some people. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I,
0: you know, I'm, not, I'm not there to criticize anything. So let's go on to, uh, to Babies. One of the interesting parallels is you know, the dark side of this women's suffrage movement is this anti-Semitism. Babies has this dark side, too, and, yeah. uh, and, that, and that is this eugenics business. And I wondered how Jewish women were attracted to the notion of birth control.
1: I think Jewish women were attracted to the idea of anything that could make their lives and their family lives better and healthier. Like all, it's a natural, I mean, I hate to essentialize, but it's kind of a natural thing for parents to want their children to be healthier. And, um, you know, and it just became very clear (laughs) that especially for immigrant women living in very poor um, conditions in terms of health and sanitation, it was risky every time they had a child. It was a risk for the child until 1920, nearly 20% of infants or children below the age of five still died in the United States. The infant mortality rate was very high, particularly in urban areas where many immigrants lived. And, it was just clear to them, just empirically clear, <laughs> that life might be better for the family if there were fewer children. Mm-hmm. This does continue a pattern. This was not new in the United States. Fertility had already been dropping among Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. So the idea of doing something uh, to manage fertility was not new to the United States. But the birth, And the birth control movement overall was not exclusive to the United States but a confluence of all kinds of factors came together and allowed greater access to birth control to many poor women. Um, the United States, like England, also suffered, as other countries did not, from a series of laws that classified birth control and contraception as obscenity. England also had this kind of legal, these legal obstacles. This was not the case in other countries in Europe, for instance, in the Netherlands, where birth control clinics had started as early as 1882 the birth rate had dropped even more dramatically than in other Western nations where it was declining precipitously. And it was clear that the drop in birth control, the drop in the birth rate was having only a positive effect on public health. Mm-hmm. So that there was, there's was a larger, a longer history to the birth control movement as well. Um, Jewish women were very avid consumers <laughs> of birth control, though. And the number, the demographics in between one generation to the next, the demographic drop in the number of Average, um, child, uh, average children was quite steep. It was steep in all communities. It was steep even among Italian Catholics, for instance, who, of course, were really not supposed to be using artificial methods of contraception, but it was particularly notable in the Jewish community, where it's effectively an economic strategy.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A
1: family can succeed with fewer children to, devote, to have to devote resources toward. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, and it's part of all of this, though, It's part of a larger trend. It's not unique to the Jewish community, but it was particularly um, notable there.
0: Yeah, what does – I know this is sort of a silly question because I'm sure it says lots of things. What does Judaism say about birth control?
1: Well, Judaism has – Judaism is very different than Catholic or canon law on birth control. There, I mean, from the very earliest you know, texts in particular are a large swath of Talmudic texts devoted to the issue of birth control – and contraception, and there is some room within Jewish law for contraception under certain kinds of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Married couples are not supposed to say they're not going to have any children, but the biblical obligation to have children is only invoked on men, um, Mm -hmm. because, (laughs) well, the principle, (laughs) of course that that does present a practical problem. (laughs) But the principle within the Talmud, within Jewish law, is that you're not your Jewish law never requires someone to put himself or herself in a life threatening situation. Mm -hmm. And giving birth is life threatening, so the obligation is not on the women. Mm -hmm. Although obviously it takes two to tango there. Um, But there is some room for spacing. There's huge, very detailed discussions about what kinds of contraceptive methods could be used. There's discussions of sponges and stones and all. I mean, very specific Mm -hmm. (laughs) discussions as far back at least as the Talmud. So mm-hmm. there, there were Jewish precedents for certain kinds of contraception. Couples were, in theory, supposed to make this decision with rabbinic consultation. They weren't supposed to decide for themselves. Right. <laughs> There's, you know, They couldn't say, no children. They could say, let's face them. Let's have fewer, maybe. Um, of course, the ideal is that you were supposed to have at least one and maybe two, according to some opinion boys, before you can make that decision. But there is some room. It's certainly not a blanket um, ban as might be the case um, for the Catholic Church. So right. the there so rabbinic opinion was somewhat divided. And I think it's telling that in the late 1920s and early 1930s, when the Reform Jewish denomination and then the conservative Jewish denomination eventually you know, issued resolutions and opinions condoning birth control, within, of course always assuming marital use, premarital sex was mm-hmm. not okay with anybody, right. the Orthodox movement, so to speak, the Orthodox Union, issued no opinion. They didn't say no, they didn't say yes. You know, the, the, the position was pretty much make these decisions in consultation with your local Orthodox rabbi. Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, they didn't, and that's significant because there was a lot of pressure on the Orthodox Union to join with the Catholic Church, for instance, or other religious groups in completely prescribing birth control, and they did not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because there's room in Jewish law for this.
0: Right. Well, one of the interesting things that I discovered in your book is that what we might call the conservative, I don't know if that's the right word, the conservative reaction to the birth control movement in, within the Jewish community speaks the same language as uh, other reactions to it, and that is they start to speak of things like race death. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, there's a concern, um, let's see, I'm trying to think kind how of to say this. There was, a con- there was a concern that some of the people who were interested in birth control or in you know, reducing the birth rate among the poor and the wretched, the yearning to be free, <laughs> were people who really, you know, had ulterior motives about reducing the number of Jews or Catholics for that no matter in right, the United States. Right. And certainly the rhetoric of people like Teddy Roosevelt and others who were interested in, you know, preserving the race. When they said that, they were actually encouraging Native-born American white women to have more children mm-hmm. to counterbalance what they saw is happening within these new immigrant communities. There's definitely a dark side. I mean, there's, there's just no question about that. But there's also, when you talk about when the word eugenics rears its ugly head these days, we all, or at least I know I do, I shudder and think of Nazis. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but of course, that's not a fair application pre the Nazi period eugenics was seen worldwide in the developed world as, you know, the solution to a better tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between what historians call positive eugenics, let's have fewer but better, healthier babies, and negative eugenics, let's stop certain people from having babies. Mm -hmm. And the affiliation of the birth control eugenics movement was mostly this positive eugenics kind of mode. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is is a very hot-button topic. (laughs) And if you, you know, I had to learn... Margaret Sanger, for instance, was very involved with all kinds of Jewish women's groups and almost all the women who worked for her in the American Birth Control League and in the clinics, a very large number of them, disproportionate, were Jewish women. And this question comes up all the time. You know, if you Google Margaret Sanger, the first things that come up are all these hateful, you know, sites about her as an anti-Semite and a eugenicist and a Nazi, you (laughs) know, and that's very problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She also said very problematic things. There's no question. But she certainly... I think, can best be categorized as a positive eugenicist. And she appreciated the fact that the American Jewish community overall seemed very supportive of the birth control movement. And the mode of the birth control movement after 1916 was free clinics in you know, places where poor and working-class women just did not have access to the same kind of materials that middle-class women might then be able to get, even legally, from their doctors. And we're talking basically here about diaphragms. Mm-hmm. Diaphragms are the new, that that's what starts, Really, the birth control movement. Of course, there were other things one could use before, like condoms. But diaphragms put the power in the hands of women; mm-hmm. they didn't have to rely on anyone else. And that's really what the birth control movement is about: about fitting women for diaphragms, teaching them to understand their bodies, and making decisions, preferably with their husbands, but not always, about what mm-hmm. their lives would be like. That's
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. very, it's very, it's, it's very interesting. I, it's, all that is very interesting to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a, eugenics is a, is a it's an example that I often give my students when I want to show that uh, two ideas that today cannot fit together mm-hmm. fit together very well in the past. Yes. yeah, and 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 they did; they fit together seamlessly. All the right-thinking people—not maybe not all of them, but <laughs> many of them—said eugenics was a good thing.
1: And yeah. there, were, there were rabbis, for instance, who remained on the board of the American Eugenics Society well into the 1930s, even after the Nuremberg Laws, which you know is a little shocking, I think, to us today. But the American Eugenics Society was not the Nazi party, and yeah. this yeah. was the height of of you know what we now might call pseudoscientific thinking, but yeah. was seen at the time as yeah. scientific thinking
2: right, right, at
1: right. the time. And, you know, it's not just the birth control movement that, of course, is affected by these ideas about eugenics. There's forced sterilization. Sure. I mean, there's, there is, in fact, a very dark side. Yeah. But the way that, of course, people use it today is to lump all this together mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. To, you know, just to see the entire what we would now call a reproductive rights movement, not a term that existed at the time as, you know, somehow sinister. Mm -hmm. And that's just historically wrong. Yeah,
0: It's it's much more complicated than that. So let's go on to banners of peace. And this actually put uh, Jewish women in a very, uh, I think, uncomfortable uh, um, situation eventually. Can you talk a little bit about Jewish women and the peace movement?
1: Yes. Um, Jewish women had been involved in the peace movement from its kind of earliest days um, blossoming in the United States. There was an old peace movement in the U.S. that went back to at least the 1830s. Many of the people who were abolitionists in the 30s were also peace activists. Um, It it wasn't a very large movement until later in the 19th century. But even before World War I, which, of course, many people came out of thinking, we can never let this happen again. We Mm -hmm. all have to be pacifists now. Even before that, all kinds of Jewish women's organizations were already creating peace committees. There was an interest in international law, in international solutions to problems before World War One, so that there was a pe- a major peace meeting at The Hague in 1907, for instance, which at which point, you know, that that's part of the whole, you know, Edwardian summer. <laughs> Things look good in 1907, right. except maybe except maybe in Russia and Japan. Right. But, yeah. um, so there was a long-standing interest in peace. There are many, many, many Jewish texts, traditional Jewish texts that support the idea of peace. The lion lying down with the lamb and Isaiah, this kind of thing. Um, to be fair, I should be said that there are also Jewish texts about war. Right. <laughs> but there's plenty of kind of religious motivation for peace as well as practical motivation. The Jewish women had a long history with this, particularly the National Council for Jewish Women and the National Federation of Temple Sisterhoods, which was founded in 1913 when <laughs> the world situation was already diceier and seemed it immediately took up peace as a major concern. And these the women who were involved in the peace movement did not only function through Jewish organizations. They also got involved with very important international organizations like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which we usually refer to as Mm WILPS. And WILPS had huge, huge numbers of Jewish women as members all over the world. And in fact, in Europe, particularly in Central and Western Europe, the leaders, the national leaders of WILPS in Germany, in Switzerland, in Austria, in Romania, and Hungary were all Jewish women. Um, all of whom then, of course, had to flee into exile, or in many yes. cases were actually killed during the war. But right. And so there was a very strong presence, and peace was so important to Jewish women's organizations in the 20s that they really became known nationally as the most important women's peace activists in many cases. Mm-hmm. And this was also significant. Now, there was anti-Semitism in the peace movement as well. It was somewhat varied during the 1910s and 1920s. In the 1930s, as these universalist ideals of peace became threatened by very particularist threats to Jewish life, to Jews, or actually to the, just to Jews, there a huge conflict arose. It was very difficult for Jewish women and for women's peace organizations to know what to do. You know, they, they had some of them had to really acknowledge that what they had always believed in, and in some cases had spent decades working very seriously on, involved in all kinds of international campaigns. Um, supporting the League of Nations even after the u s didn't join this kind of thing the international the world Court you know really pushing for the u s to join the world court, which it did not um, all of these kinds of things were really threatened by okay, here comes Hitler and not yeah, yeah you know and it's they, they don't care about universalism <laughs> mm-hmm. you know they're, they are attacking they're attacking Jews mm-hmm. and so well, this is a huge crisis. <laughs> not just Jewish women, of course, Jewish men as well, and very few of them remained pacifist throughout the war. It also is important to note that the word pacifist is, is very elastic. It has many meaning, meanings during the interwar era. It could mean an absolutist pacifist, no war under any time, under any circumstances. Very few Jewish people remained absolutist pacifist. There were a few. Um, it could also mean, let's work for solutions, let's try, let's only have a defensive war, not an offensive war. It's a very elastic kind of term, and so it can be used correctly to describe lots of different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of, you know, especially for women who had been primarily involved in WILTS and through non-Jewish women's organizations, they were just devastated to learn that the organizations they had spent you know, their lives supporting and really working very significantly for could not or would not respond to this new threat. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And of
1: course, from Wilp's perspective, the threat of another war was so appalling that they couldn't, they, they couldn't take the time, they thought, to worry about one particular group. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it was terrible what was happening to the Jews, but it would be more terrible if there was a war, another war. So they, they had just different interests, mm-hmm. and those interests diverged increasingly through the end of the 1930s, and it caused a lot of real personal tragedy in some ways for women and men who couldn't reconcile but had been very serious committed activism with this new threat. And it was, it's really sad, actually. When you read some of what these people were writing in the late 30s, they just were heartbroken that they were now forced to make a choice. And the, the majority of them chose to identify Jewish, so to speak, and, and to kind of leave the peace movement. And it was a very difficult decision. And for some of those people, there's one woman in my book in particular named Rebecca Orrich Reyer, who you know, had never particularly thought of herself as Jewish, well, she was she didn't deny it, mm-hmm. but it didn't matter much to her, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden this identity was kind of foisted upon her, right. and she found that it was actually more significant to her than she would ever yeah. thought it would be mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. well that that they were uh, that they faced a dilemma and, and that, that is always a very uncomfortable thing um, and it's interesting to see how they reacted the, Let me ask one final question before we get to the real final question and that is um, and this is a theme that that is mentioned in your book several times how did these Jewish women or the groups that represented them or uh, to which they were members relate to Zionism. And I have to say, I know nothing about Zionism in the United States. So you're going to have to really, really carry the ball here.
1: Well, that's a complicated topic. Zionism in the United States was not singular. There were several different brands of Zionism, so to speak. Um, I will say that some of the Jewish women activists I write about could have cared less about Zionism. Mm -hmm. It just was not that major an issue for many of them. A woman who was very interested in Zionism would have been much more likely to join Hadassah, which was a a Zionist organization. Um, I'm not suggesting that Zionism didn't matter at all to these women, but I actually found in, in doing a tremendous amount of archival research, this book is based on years of very significant archival digging, a lot of them just didn't engage at all.
2: Mm-hmm. They
1: didn't care that much about Zionism. They saw it as something that was removed from them. They were in the United States. or working To them, working internationally did not always mean anything but Western Europe, Western, the Western mm-hmm. world. And it was not foremost on the minds of many of the women that I am writing about. I do not at all mean to suggest that it wasn't foremost on the minds of many other Jewish women. But I'd say that the Jewish women involved whose primary interests were in the women's movement often were not particularly engaged by Zionism. They mm-hmm. didn't even bother to be anti-Zionist. They just, it was not such an important issue for them. Of course, there were exceptions, and um, they, for, and sometimes the paths would cross. There was an interest in trying to get a Jewish women's suffrage group going in pre-state Palestine. And that, that happened, so that the International Women's Suffrage Association had a Palestinian chapter. At that time, Palestinian basically meant Jewish. Which is kind of ironic, given mm-hmm. that later developments. Yeah. Um, the Zionist movement was quite hostile in America to women in general. They tried to take over Hadassah several times, actually, um, prompting Henrietta Szold, the founder of Hadassah, to leave and go do her, all her work in pre-state Israel and Palestine, mm-hmm. partially because she couldn't stand the fighting in the U.S. anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, Zionism, so the Jewish women were very heavily involved. We were very heavily identified as Jewish for the most part, but. Zionism was not necessarily part of that identification. Yeah. That, of course, changes in the late 30s. So, that Rebecca Ray, whom I mentioned before, who had actually been to, to Palestine in the 19, 1920s and was not very sympathetic to what she saw going on there. She mm-hmm. thought it was a disaster in the making to not have the Arab and the Jewish settlers um, get along better. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, mm-hmm. We all know how that turned out. But she changed her mind, though, because in, after, as Things got worse and worse in the thirty. She began to believe that it was very important to have a safe refuge for Jews in the world, and that it only made sense historically, religiously, politically, et cetera, for it to be in this part, in this spot in Israel, in mm-hmm. Palestine. Um, so there was there was some more openness to Zionism, and then after the war, after you know, in, in the long term aftermath after the war after the Holocaust, of course, many of these Jewish women's organizations turned almost their complete attention to Zionism in a way that just had not been the case before.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's a peculiar kind of, the reason I ask the question is that uh, I've always been very interested in the, in the, in the great ambivalence. And it's, there, there are many different kinds of Jewish communities in the United States. The, the, uh, I, and again, I'm, I'm sure people will hate me for saying this, but the, the ambivalence of American Jews toward Israel and toward Zionism in general.
1: Well, that's something that has kind of come and gone in waves. I mean, we, now we see ambivalence, I think, in some degree, not towards Zionism in the sense, in the basic definition of you know the right of Israel to exist in a yeah. state, I don't think there's actually yeah, much ambivalence. It, yeah,
2: everybody
1: agrees. Yeah, well, let me hope. But, sure. but you know, Israel as a government. But that, Israel as a government was a non-entity until 1948, right? right? So before that period, which is what I'm looking at, you can't have that. There was certainly, I mean, the Jewish agency and other... Uh, the Zionist entities in Israel certainly came, Palestine, excuse me, came under scrutiny and criticism to a great degree, and especially from peace activists, actually, in the pre-war period. But again, it didn't engage that many Jewish women. I think that kind of comes and goes in waves. And another thing that I guess this gives me an opportunity to point out is that the American Jewish community has always been divided along all kinds of Mm -hmm. lines. We've talked about, you know, national origin, but there's also religious observance, you know, et- ethnic background, class status, gender, um, race to some degree. Jews were not seen as white when they first came to mm-hmm. the United States. And there's a wonderful book about that called The Price of Whiteness by mm-hmm. Eric Goldstein. Um, there, were any, there were many ways to slice and dice the American Jewish yeah. community. And one of the things that's amazing about Jewish women's activism in 1st wave feminism is that it effectively bridges a lot of those divisions, mm-hmm. a lot of those gaps, and brings women together as women. As Jewish women to support these causes. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. That's a good answer, and I need to look more into that. I, re- I really don't know. I mean, I know that. Well, I don't really know anything. <laughs> I, just say that.
1: I mean, I, I don't want to. Yeah, you know, I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to. Of course, there were there were plenty of American Zionists, and, yeah. you know, and they had yeah, sure. some very important role models, people like Louis Brandeis. Brandeis became the head of the American Zionist. Yeah. movement, and that was extremely important. You know, it's not that it doesn't exist, but it was very, very possible to be a Jewishly active American Jew and not engage much with Zionism in Mm -hmm. the pre-war period. Mm -hmm. That is much less true after the Holocaust.
0: Yeah, no, right. No, that's absolutely right. So thank you so much for being on the show, Melissa. I really appreciate it. Today we've been talking with Melissa Clapper about ballots, babies, and banners of peace, American Jewish women's activism, 1890 to 1940. As I told you in the pre-interview, Melissa, we have a traditional final question here on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: Okay, well, I'm uh, something of a departure. Um, You have heard that my first two books were about children. I Mm -hmm. also think of myself very much as a historian of childhood. I was involved from the very early years in the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth, and I say that by way of explaining my next project, which is quite different. I'm going to. I, I'm going back to the history of childhood and gender issues, and I'm going to write a social history of ballet class in America.
0: Ballet class.
1: Ballet class. I'm um, <laughs> going to do something a little different, maybe a little more populist. We'll see.
0: Ballet class.
1: It, that, it, you know, My it's, it's, sister
0: did ballet class. Did you do well, ballet you class? Think of every, course I every, did. <laughs> every girl does ballet. My daughter well, that's, loves ballet all, Not just
1: that's, girls, but the fact that any of us would say that, even jokingly, that girls take ballet, there you have it. I'm interested in the way that ballet class became part of a certain kind of middle-class childhood in the 20th century. It's totally true that it did. Yes. So I mean, that, that is my next project. I'm in the early stages and quite enjoying it. I'm currently reading all these children's books about ballet that I remember from when I was a kid. And quite so
0: is ballet, right? is, i got to ask this, so is ballet, is it a sort of standard thing for French? I, I, I'm not going to use the word girls in the technical sense, that is. Mm-hmm. That is yeah. Do, do French girls do ballet class, all of them, like American girls do?
1: In, throughout the 20th century, I think, you know, I actually don't know the answer to it's that more to recently, that, yeah. but yeah. it's certainly certainly yes for the first part of the 20th century. And, yeah. the, uh, you know, it's all because of the Russian Revolution. Yeah,
2: is There's, it really? All these, wow. Yeah,
1: all these people who had ballet training, you know, in the Imperial Ballet School, whatever, Russia, had to, were forced to leave, and a significant number of them went to Paris. And so the next generation of really important da- uh, dancers often came from those teachers in Paris. Hmm. Some of them came to the United States, but really ballet ballet existed in the U.S. in the middle of the 19th century. But it took off after Anna Pavlova toured the U.S. in Anna
0: 1909.
1: Pavlova, wow! And, and so I'm not interested. I'm not so interested in the people who became professional dancers. I'm interested in normal right. no, people like me. Yeah, <laughs> right.
0: yeah, my sister. You know? yeah, she's very into it. Yep. Yeah,
1: I uh, took ballet for 14 years. Right, and, um, <laughs> right. So, and, and plie.
0: So, I even remember some of the words. You yeah. know, <laughs> grand plie. I That's right. <laughs> stuff, right. Well, that, that, that's, that's a terrific project. That, that's a terrific project, and I wish you great luck with it. Again, we've been talking with Melissa Clapper um, about ballots, babies, and banners of peace American Jewish women's activism, 1890 to 1940. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I want to wish everybody a very good week. And I want to say again to Melissa, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks very much. Okay, bye-bye.